You're drowned by my perfect fire, my perfect life. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> It was a ridiculous opening. Hello, everybody. This is The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. And I'm Olivier in imitation of Scott Powell. That's not what I sound like. Yeah, that's what you sound no, like. No, it's not. You sound like you. I sound like you. You wish I sounded I don't like you. Good, you wish you sounded like me. Thank you. Dude, do you know how like... You're mean on the podcast today. No, 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 no. Do you ever have moments where, as you're talking to somebody else, you flash to like a very specific moment and place in your life? Uh, okay, sort of. I just had a flash to a weird bus stop in the middle of Spain walking the Camino last summer okay. to where I got an ice cream cone at this like weird like <laughs> like gas station bus stop place. It was really very strange as you were talking, and so... I, watch out! The the microphone Ow. really does get in your way. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You got an ice. So I reminded you of ice cream. You did. Is that essentially what you're saying? That's basically what I'm I saying. I mean, there's a lot worse I could do than that. I uh, agree. All right. It is. What is it? The fifth Sunday of ordinary time. Am I right? One, one two, three, four, five. <laughs> <laughs> We are living it up in Easter. Father Peter and I are in a good mood. We are. But I kind of feel like we got all of our uh, all of our happy thoughts out before the podcast. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've been sitting around for like an, an hour, hour. <laughs> eating Fat Shack and drinking pink margaritas. It's about, it's about right, actually. No, it is. <laughs> that's like, not a metaphor. For ra- raspberry. Yeah, that's not a fact. metaphor. Yeah, but well, it's Easter, so that's the way we should be living. It's, and it's sunny. It's beautiful. It's warm. It's been cold the last week or so. It's been like raining, and like everything's growing, and everything's green. Everything's it's, real green. It's so you know, happy. It's so happy, and we're so happy because I'm, you're here. I'm really happy that you're here, and thanks for everybody for the messages we've gotten. Things from like Jeff Moskovitz sent me a paper some dude wrote on time. To like, oh, uh, yeah, 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 like uh, other other lanky things. Like, um, Andrew Bierman sent us some palindromes, and Bill Wimsat sent us, uh, like some love. Just you're checking the mail, I uh, dude. I am, Good I am, job. I am, um, I'm like kind of the mailman. If you hear a dog barking <laughs> on occasion on the podcast, that's dude, he just not. looked at me, he just looked at me. He'd been laying down, and uh, his name is Simon, and uh, he just is, he's he's kind Simon, of a, Simon looked at Peter. <laughs> all right it's okay. the fifth sunday of easter uh our readings this week our readings this week we are beginning with acts of the apostles chapter 9 verses 26 through 31 dude do you know how much if if i were a publisher i really would be so tempted to, to change the word acts a-c-t-s to a-x-e dude like i really just Every love the acts time. acts of the apostles dude i do you I've, mean the, i've held back for for months do you mean the saying. tool or the body spray the tool body okay. spray they have inappropriate commercials oh well we don't like them no i do not like axe body spray all right i boycott them on principle heck with you axe all right our second read our, our responsorial psalm is psalm 22 26a is the response mm-hmm. and the psalm itself if you look starts and it goes 25 and then it goes 26 and then it goes 27 then it skips all the way to 29 and then it goes to 30 and then it goes to 31 that's not what i have i mean i have no idea how well this is the thing is that it's not broken up correctly in the software that i use right here like as far as the strophes go 
Well, what the USCCB says is 26 through 27, then 28, 30, 31 through 32, which it is broken up weird. I went through the actual psalm, and things are weird this week, but that's okay because I'll tell you why. Weird. Our second reading is coming from 1 John. Are you, you, you're not even waiting for me to say them? I just, you just did the psalm. Oh, did I? Yeah. Shoot. Come on, man. I know. Get I mean, I the, read Get with them. the program. Yeah, seriously. Second John. First John. <laughs> Second John. Chapter three, verses 18 through 24. It's, it's a, like, it's a childish reading. Uh, and then, then we, uh, the gospel acclamation. Childlike the, reading. The acclamation before the verse is John 15, 4a, 5b, which is kind of a strange connection of things, but that's well, cool. It, it's from the actual reading. Yeah. So we get the full thing and our gospel reading is John Chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Is that true? It is. Yeah, 1 through 8. Good. Mm-hmm. I misread it. Um, good. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. We hope that you got a lot out of the podcast today. And uh, if we're recording today. I kind of dig it. Is, uh, today we're not is, really done. Is the uh, Feast of uh, St. Catherine of Siena. It is the Feast of St. Catherine Siena, of Siena. I thought it was the Feast of uh, um, someone else this morning. Now I'm blanking on the name. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Uh, tell us about St. Catherine of Siena. She's incorruptible. Incorrupt. A bull. I guess a bull is a, is a fitting suffix to that. She, she, is an, she is one of the incorruptibles. I mean, isn't that like... Can you just say she's incorrupt? She is incorrupt. Wouldn't that be just be grammatically easier? I mean, it depends on your, your uh, propensity towards grammar, really. I have a, a, a quite a, a propensity toward grammar. Okay, so she is incorrupt. Uh, she ha- had a big, she was like the 42nd child of 93 or something like that. What? I'm just kidding. She was like okay. the she was like the. You 19th, knew I wasn't paying attention. She was like the 19th child of like 24. That's, no, that, it really? For real? 24 children? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She would have had a reality TV show in her day. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, here, I'll, I will get the exact number. I'm going to check Wikipedia because that's very um, accurate. Okay. While you do that, let's talk about Acts of the Apostles. So, Acts. Whoa, that was cool reverb. Do you hear that? Yeah, I did. Okay. Acts of the Apostles. I want to say, I was thinking of how to articulate this today as I was walking back from the fat shack with your Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> I was trying to think of how to articulate. I really was. How to articulate this. I think this is the... Third most important turning point in the entire Bible. Maybe the fourth. Oh my gosh. Third or fourth. So I'm trying to think of the most important turning point. So what are the most important turning points do you think exist in the Bible? This is fun. Two most important turning points that exist in the Bible. Two or, two or, two or three. I mean, are we talking original? Or are, we, are we talking, like, what's the context the whole of grace? Thing. The whole thing. First, turning most, points. Turning in the point. story of salvation. Okay, the f- biggest one is Adam and Eve, number uh, one. Well, that's probably the first one. That's the first one. I don't know if it's the biggest one. Because I was thinking along those lines, too, and I was like, oh, well, okay. biggest one. Uh, the second one is the incarnation. See, I don't think that's true. Why don't you think it's true? I think that's the biggest. Well, the incarnation. Oh, see, this is this is tricky. I should. Mm, you should never ask me questions. I, this is the wrong route. This is an important turning point in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I want to emphasize. I do think this is one of the most important moments in the Bible. Well, one of the most important, yeah, turning points in the Bible. So, did, did we read the same gospel? Yeah. Like, yes, are we, are we did. talking about Acts right yes, here? Yes, we are. Not this. 
this passage in particular, but the scene, the story. Okay. So what am I talking about? I, I'm talking about the conversion of Saul. Yes. The conversion of Saul is the event which propels the church into the ends of the earth. Yes. It is the singular, and that's why I think it's one of the most important turning points of the entire Bible. I mean, I'm thinking about the most important turning points, yeah, at the fall of man. You know, that's a big turning point. Things change. I'm thinking of the Exodus event and yes. the golden calf. Big changes. A big change. The incarnation. I mean, you could just talk about this, the, the Christ story, right? The incarnation, the passion, the death. This changes all of human. That's the most important one, right? Jesus' death yes, and resurrection absolutely. changes all of humanity. Even, but, the, even the fathers would say the incarnation would be yeah. enough. The incarnate, yeah, some of the fathers said that's enough to save humanity, and I think they're right. But then this is what propels that message to go to the place where God had always intended from day one for the gospel message, the good news, the evangelium to go, which is out to the ends of the earth. I mean, the whole vocation of Israel in the Old Testament was to go out to the nations and bring them back to God. Absolutely. They fail at that. Yeah. So they're scattered to the nations, and Christ brings them back so that the church can go out to the nations. This is what precipitates that. So this is the importance of Saul's conversion, I, I don't think can be underestimated. Because again, it's going to be Saul who leads the charge in the church going at it's. It's funny chapters nine and ten, a little bit of eleven of Acts, I think, are my favorite. They might be my favorite part of Scripture, because the story that you get is so profound. So you have the conversion of Saul. You have here what happens, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm -hmm. After Saul's conversion, and and here's where Scripture gets kind of tricky on us. Yeah. Right after Saul's conversion. Scripture seems to throw you for a loop, and it turns you back to Peter. And there's the story in chapter which, 10. Which, which happens right after we get this passage that we have today. Exactly it, right. Literally, literally, it just goes right back to Peter. Basically, he gets sent down to Tarsus, and then we're no, like... No, not Tarsus. Is he in Tarsus, Peter? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Paul gets sent down to Tarsus, and then yeah, I want to talk about Peter. And then, we, and then we flash back to Peter. Then yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. I I'm thought just, you were saying I'm Peter just setting went to the talk the the toxic the the um context. I thought you were saying Peter went down to Tarsus. No, no, yeah. So Paul gets sent off, and then all of a sudden, randomly, Acts shifts to Peter, and there's the story about Peter. He goes to this place called Joppa. He raises this girl, Dorcas, from the dead. <laughs> Dorcas. She, he raises Dorcas from the dead, he and raises he gets Dorcas. pigs in the blanket. Yeah, then he gets this pigs in a blanket vision, which basically says, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, Yes, he sees this vision of all these once unclean animals. God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, I can't, they're unclean. God says, what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. And then he goes literally from there to preach the gospel to the first group of non-Jews en masse who receive the gospel. They are baptized on the spot and the second Pentecost takes place. It's interesting, and, and studiers of, of scripture have been confused by this because it's going to be Paul who is the one who goes out to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews with this message. Yes. But the very first instance of non-Jews being baptized is actually at the hands of Peter. Why? Well, what the church wants us to see is that it's only because God gave the authority to the first pope hmm. to set this in motion hmm. that then Peter, or then Paul rather, has his marching orders to go out and do what he has to do. Oh. But that vision had to come to the pope because it had to come through the structure that God established. So it needs to be Peter who does it for the first time to give Paul the authority to then go out to the Gentiles and start this new mission that the church will endeavor to, to perform. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's a huge moment. Now, before that happens, we get this scene. And um, 
just I, I just have to read what comes before this because did you read the context? Because it's wonderful. I, I didn't. I actually I was involved in studying a bunch of other stuff. I was involved in my studies. I was involved what a in my studies. Just way to say that. Shut up. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Dude, um, I'm, I'm not the one kidding. who's mean on this podcast. You are mean. I am. Uh where are we? Yeah, so so here's what happens. So we know kind of the story of Paul. Um Paul was leading the charge in persecuting these Christians, right? These believers in Christ. He was zealous for his faith. He was Jewish. He was a Pharisee. Later on, specifically in Galatians, he points out in 2 Corinthians 2, he point he goes through basically his resume. So you can kind of go back and apply this. And he says all these things. Because later on in some of the letters, people will accuse him of being a lousy Jew. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yes. Like, you're not legitimate. He's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you my resume. I was so zealous for the faith, I killed Christians because I thought they were threatening the, the purity of Judaism. That's how serious I was. I was a Pharisee. I studied the law under Gamaliel, the greatest the teacher of the time. I was Boom. Uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Did you ever catch that? Whenever Paul's giving his resume, one of the things that that makes him a great Jew, according to himself, is the fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And this came up in my Psalms class that I taught a few weeks ago. Do you have any idea why it's so important to Paul to point out that he's from the tribe of Benjamin? I think this is kind of a cool fact of history. No. The tribe of Benjamin, if you go back in salvation history, and you remember, you know, there were originally 12 tribes. Ten of those tribes, there's a civil war. Go to the north and they're exiled. Yeah. The only tribe that does not split split in the civil war is... Benjamin. Tiny little Benjamin. And it eventually gets absorbed back into giant Judah. But for Paul, what he's saying is, look, I am so legitimate. My family is from the one and only tribe that even in the face of scandal and adversity and sin, we did not abandon God and his temple and his king. We are the only ones. So for Paul to say, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, it says, we are the faithful ones. We are the ones who, literally the only ones who did not abandon the family. Can you hear? Which that, is kind of a, a cool fact. That's awesome. I mean, that dude is hardcore. So he's a yeah. big deal. So that's who Paul is. And again, he's so zealous for this. He's he's um, persecuting the Christians. It's at Paul's, Saul's hands that Stephen, who's considered the first Christian martyr, dies. Which we had last week in the, in the readings. Was that last week? Yeah. We had it recent. Was it last week? Oh, it, it might was have been, recently. It, it might recent. have been a daily mass. It's recent. Yeah. yeah, it was recent in the Sunday readings. Um, so uh, this guy is, uh, for the Christians at least, this guy's terrifying. Oh, by yeah. The way, by the way, side note with Paul. I love Paul. I love studying Paul. Sometimes but I hate listening the, to you too. <laughs> you jerk. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I love you. Here's the thing. Um, okay. Uh, Paul, sometimes it seems like Paul's name was changed. So in the Bible, you know, name change always implies new mission, new something. I don't think Paul's name was ever actually changed. You get the impression that throughout the letters, when he is in Gentile territory, he goes by the name Paul. When he's in Jewish territories, he goes by the name Saul. Weird. So I don't think it's weird What's that about? I think it's Paul trying to do exactly what he says his vocation is, which is trying to be all things to all people. He has a Hellenized version of his name oh. when he's with the non-Jews. When he's with Jews, he has the name of their first king. So I think it's just mm. different regional dialects of the same name. But again, I think it embodies Paul's mission, which is to be all things to all people. I think it's kind of cool. That's a, that's a side note, but it's an interesting one. I think that's... That's debatable, but I, I think you never see a strict change. Well, you see that today. I mean, like the the fact that... He's actually going out to the Hellenists in our yeah. reading today, and they really wanted to kill him. They, I I well, love the absolute boldness of. They wanted to kill him. That was last week, wasn't it? First reading, fifth Sunday of Easter, Sunday May third. Yeah, 
Yeah, he, and it's verse 29, <laughs> and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Mm. Did you study the right readings? Oh, yeah, there they are. I see the Hellenists. <laughs> well, no, sorry, the reason it confused me, because in context, where Paul came from is Jerusalem, where the Jews were trying to kill him. So somebody's always trying to kill him. Oh, yeah. Um, so, sorry, that's what threw me off. But I just I just want to point this out. So this is backing up to verse 23. So he's in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel now. He's he's become united with the Christians. And it says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Because remember, he is their best teacher. He is the best rabbi that they had. Oh, and now yeah. he's turned. So they plotted to kill him. Um, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching but the, gate, uh, the gates day and night to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. Come on. What a great escape that is. <laughs> That's actually pretty sweet. <laughs> He's in a it's not quite the Yeah, the What's that movie with Tom Cruise? No, dude, all I have to say is this. But you're not even This is our time down here. This is their time up there. But this is our time down here and it's all over the minute we take up Troy's bucket. I don't know if that's a quote. I know you're quoting something. Goonies, dog. Oh. Come on, man. Oh. What were you Mission gonna... Impossible. Mission Impossible. I just, when I was in high school, we did a skit for our youth group where we suspended somebody from those those ropes. You remember uh, that scene uh, in Mission Impossible where you can't touch the floor? Absolutely. So yeah. we did, but it's not quite the same as being lowered in a little Easter basket. <laughs> anyway, that's why I always picture. Anyway, but here's what I want to say about this. So then we pick it up. So when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all, understandably so, afraid of him because yes. he had been killing them, not believing that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas took charge of him and brought him to the apostles and report, and he reported to them how he had seen the Lord and he had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. He moved about freely with them in Jerusalem and he spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. He also spoke in debate with the Hellenists, but they tried to kill him, right? Um, okay, here's and then, the thing. And then when everybody figured it out, they had to they pull him. on his way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's the thing. I just want to focus, and this is a very... I guess pastoral application. I, I mean, there's there's lots of history, and, and this is beautiful, but I just want to put this into context and try. I was trying to think of the best analogy I could for either the person or the group or the the individual, the famous whoever it is in our lives that would either be most terrifying, most despicable, or most hated to us, and trying to comprehend what it would mean to welcome that person. Like, imagine somebody, the leader of ISIS, comes to St. Thomas Aquinas and is like, I want to be a Catholic, and I want you to let me minister with you. Like, what do you, what do, you do with that? Matt Barker. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Have you spoken to Matt? Have you spoken to Matt yet about But you know what I mean? Try to picture the person, like, not just least palatable, but he is literally killing your group. No, he is murdering you because he has hatred for you. And the idea that Barnabas has the guts to step up and be like, no, I'm with this guy. I'm going to stand. I mean, I think the most courageous scene in this is actually Barnabas, who is willing to face the, the, the mockery, the, the whoever knows what the community is going to say to Barnabas. Like, who do you, what are you doing welcoming this guy? How, how could you possibly welcome him? And just trying to, again, I'm trying to think of the best analogy for someone like Paul would have been seen as in our community. You know, James yeah. Holmes, the, the guy who, who did the, the murder in the theater shooting, right? Yeah. Imagine the idea of him having a conversion 
and wanting to receive forgiveness and meet with the families of those who, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just trying to think like, put this into a real concrete, tangible pastoral application. And this becomes not the nice little Bible story that it looks like, but one that, can you imagine the, the what this speaks to is the witness of the Christian community. Yes. That they actually receive the guy who murdered their counterparts yeah their peers their friends their family like the origin like the most core people to them yes and they welcome him and he becomes a leader among them that is early christianity the idea that the reconciliation of jesus christ is powerful enough that you could welcome among you the one who murdered your family Dude, that's that's insane. shocking. I mean, that that's scandalous. Oh yeah. And that's what I think I was most struck by in this reading because it's a neat, it's interesting, it's fun. You know, talking about the history and Paul conversions, but to really swallow what's actually going on here, like uh, what if what if someone from ISIS did come and want to be a Catholic and want to minister? Dude, I just, would we as a Christian community have any way that we could actually allow that reconciliation to take place? That that's what I think we need to grapple with. That that's what stuck out most in this first reading to me. Yes. So that's what, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about that one. I, and I, I think the rest of the readings actually all speak to that. That's my thesis on these. Yeah. I, I the only last thought that I had was, um, you know, the <laughs> that uh, sometimes in the midst of this in, intense zealousness <laughs> that. <laughs> That um, spiritually, sometimes, like in the moments of extreme conversion, the mm. Lord actually has to, like, he has this initial profound growth, but then he actually has to put it into a seedbed. And that's where Paul or the Lord, the, the Paul, Paul, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, Paul had to be put in a seedbed. That's yeah. why he had to go down to Tarsus and end, end up in Corinth is because of all of this. And so it's like, I love, so this church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. That's an incredible, that was the only thing I was going to add, but that's incredible. The fruit of them doing the unthinkable. Yes. Was that the church had peace. Mm. I mean, think about that. I think that's a really powerful takeaway. The fruit of the church forgiving the seemingly unforgivable. Whoa. Was that the church, not just Paul, not just Barnabas, the church throughout the land had peace. That is the fruit of forgiveness, at least in this instance. Dude, let's get into Psalm 22 now then. Okay, Psalm 22. Because, wow. Now, do you know the context of Psalm? What is Psalm 22 most well known for? Um, oh, uh, my Lord, my Lord, why have thou forsaken me? Right. So what we get, you wouldn't recognize this from what you're going to hear on Sunday. So it starts out, I will praise you, Lord, in the assembly of your people. And I'll fulfill my vows before those who fear the Lord, the lowly shall eat their fill, etc. But the first lines of this pretty long psalm are what Jesus says on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. And I think we talked about this. There's a tradition. So in, um, in Matthew, and I think Mark, right? He says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke's gospel, he says a line from Psalm 31 which is very similar to what he says in Psalm 22. And there's a tradition that in the time that he hung on the cross, he actually reads, he recites all of the Psalms in between. Yes. That that's what he spent his time doing, which means he would have spoken these words while he was on the cross. He would have been saying, I will praise you, Lord, in the assembly of your people. Now think about that for a moment. Where are, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, where are the Lord's people assembled? Uh, I mean, at the foot of the, cross who are the lord's people 
Israel and then those of Israel. I mean, that's really what it is. And who is standing? What is Israel doing at this moment? Mocking him and mocking and spitting and shouting curses at him. What is Jesus doing? I will praise you, Lord, in the assembly of your people. Now, the assembly of your people is usually shorthand in the Hebrew ideal uh, for the temple and for um, liturgy, the liturgical practice in the temple itself. But where's the temple? He, he is. He is. There is a brick and mortar temple off on the other hill, but he is the midst of the assembly. He is the temple building. Where are his people? They're gathered around mocking and jeering at him. What is he doing? He is praising the Lord in the midst of your people, in the assembly of the people. This is, this is what he's doing. Now, hearing this on Sunday, you're like, oh, I'll praise you in the assembly of your people. When the people are all assembled, I'll praise you and sing these songs. But no, the context of that for us as Christians is yeah. Jesus praising him in the assembly of his people as the temple, unrecognized as the, the stone that the builders rejected, as we read last week, being spit and mocked at and jeered. What is he doing? He's saying, my God, or he's saying, Father, forgive them. How is he praising God in the midst of his people? By saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I think that in context of liturgy is important. I mean, we, yes, ta- it's we, huge. we, we talk about like in apologetics, you know, they say, you, you Catholics, <laughs> you. you Catholics, what you do is this, is that, um, I know, I'm, I don't know why I did that. Um, All of our listeners in the South are. Hating us, yeah, exactly. Um, but is is you say, oh, you re-sacrifice Christ, yeah, which is we something don't. that you'll hear, and you'll say, no, we're participating in the one sacrifice of Christ, once for all. That we're actually becoming present. The car, we're, we're actually becoming present to that reality. So, mm-hmm. I think that even on the cross, in those moments, Jesus saw all time of all people who come and liturgically become present to him in those moments. So in the midst of the assembly, so what we see and what we're experiencing and what we know happened on a human level is that Israel's there. But on a supernatural level, the entirety of Israel is there. Yes. Worshiping and proclaiming and rejoicing. And think about how where all the masses have been said. Where all and how much. I mean like during the day, every single moment of the day we are being made present as in a every holy people of the earth. Yeah, to yeah. to Jesus on the cross, which is really profound when you actually take a moment and and consider the eternal nature of that moment. So how is that tied into the first reading? Because I think it's tied intimately. Dude, hit me with it. Give me your insight. What is the church doing? She's praising God in this in the midst oh. of the assembly. How is she doing that? By doing what Christ did. Father, forgive this mm. Saul, for he knew not what he did. They're actually embodying what Jesus was doing when he prayed this on the cross mm. by forgiving the unforgivable and welcoming yeah. him, not just in their neighborhood, but in the assembly of the Lord's people, in the liturgical family. That's literally what the, what the first reading is doing. Wow. I thought that was a neat kind of connection. And which is, go, which we go to uh, verse 26. Oh which says the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, which yeah. all the medievals are saying, this is the Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we're actually ten- and, connecting even deeper into the midst of this, this Paschal mystery. And who are the afflicted? Again, in the context of the first reading. Oh, yeah. Isn't that kind of interesting? Because on one level, you could think, oh, the afflicted, well, it's the church because they're being persecuted. But on another level, it's Paul himself because he's actually, for a long time, he's missed this. And now he's being welcomed in. He has been afflicted and he's lashed out. And now he's going to come into the Eucharist and actually eat and be filled. Into the rest of the 
persecuted, afflicted, who are eating and being filled. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And this whole psalm speaks of it. It does. And again, to think of Jesus actually silently reciting this as he's hanging on the cross the whole time, knowing what's going to happen in the future, is just uh, a profound vision. Dude, you make me want to pray. You're a prayer. Uh, (laughs) Let's go to Uh, 1 John. I I shouldn't try to turn everything into an insult. (laughs) 1 John. Dude. Not an insult. You know know why you're doing that is because I've been so mean to you, and I... (laughs) And I forgive you for all the meanness that you've inflicted upon me. Thank you, Father Peter. You're the best. You're the best, too. See, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to live out of what we've already been talking about. You're the best, dude. Little children. Do you forgive me? I do. For when I was mean to you? For everything. Were you mean to me on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't That's know. That's all you've been saying for like two no, weeks. Oh, well, then yes. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> forgive and forget. Forgive it. That's, dude, look at that. You've forgotten. I have forgotten. I don't know if I forgave, but I forgot. Uh, little children. Is that what you're talking to me? Well, I'm the second reading <laughs> I begins that. Ah. Ah. See how I do that? Okay, now this first line. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed and truth. Boom, microphone Boom, drop. Mic I mean, it's, drop. Like, it's like we don't even need to go any further to understand, but it, we, I mean, we can't. And that's beautiful, though. I, I actually, um, on my personal little faith book page. Faith book? Oh, okay. Sorry. I, I put this little video up yesterday. Little video. I put a video. So I was, I was watching all the, all the rioting in Baltimore the other day, right? which would have been two days ago. I don't know when you guys are listening. But anyway, big riots in Baltimore happened, and there was this video. I don't know if you saw it, and it's not getting reported much, which I think is just tragic. There were, did you see this? There were over 100 clergy members that day who took to the streets all together, and they marched, they marched, and and what they did, and there's this beautiful video. (laughs) And uh, it, it was on one of the local Baltimore news stations, and they've got it from the helicopter, but there's this reporter with the clergy and throughout the, her whole report, she is clearly almost in tears. And she keeps being like, I've never seen anything like this. This is the most profound thing I've ever seen. This is beautiful. And basically what she's saying is, look, all these pastors are here, the leaders of the community, a hundred some, you know, different denominations, all sorts of things. And what they did is they marched on the street and they literally knelt and put themselves in between the police line and the protesters. And they're like, we're going to bridge the gap. And basically what they said is like, for too long, wow. we've been, you know, it's, it's great to stand up and have a press conference and be like, stop the violence. But they're like, we're not going to stand up and have a press conference. We're going to go on the street, put ourselves in harm's way, and we are going to kneel and be a witness and wow. put ourselves in the gap. Yeah. Not in word or speech, but in truth and deed. And um, the reporter at one point in this video, she was like, these clergy are commanding this moment. She's like, I see no bottles being thrown. I see no violence. The clergy are commanding everything. Wow. And at one point, the police are like, we're going to follow you. And the police literally were led by the clergy because they're like, you need to lead. It was, it was profoundly beautiful. Dude, that, I want to cry. It was profoundly beautiful. I'll put it up on the, on the link you guys um, cite. But that is a great, and you know, there's forgiveness. And they actually said at one point, I mean, whatever your take is on the whole Baltimore thing, they were like, you know what? We have failed this community. We need to be the leaders. We need to be teaching our children. We need to be standing up. Yeah. So we're not going to say it from a pulpit. We're going to stand. We're going to say it from the pulpit too, but we're going to stand in the middle. We're going to bridge the gap. That's what Christianity does, right? Yes. It bridges the gap between broken parties. That's what the early church is doing in the first reading. We will stand in the middle. A bridger of the gap. Isn't there like some... Bridger of the gap, yeah. Isn't there, there's like some Greek word of that or something? Oh, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just... Dude, that's yeah, really probably. that's really beautiful. It, it was beautiful, yeah. 
And again, that it's speaking to these readings. This is what this is what Paul is doing. This is what the church is doing. And again, I love that the first reading says, "Look at the fruits. Look yep. at the fruit. It's peace." And again, you know, again to take it back to the Baltimore thing. You know, more riots, more violence happened, but at least for that moment, there was peace on the streets. And even the, the reporter was like, "Nobody's doing anything. People, the the rioters are joining in with these clergy. They're joining hands. They're singing. There was peace. That is the fruit. And the peace doesn't always last, but." I don't know. There's something to it. So Which, that was what I was moved by this week. But lasting peace is what actually what draws us into this yes. John 15. That's here. exactly right. Is is abide in me? I am the vine. You are the branches. Meno is the Greek word for abide. I know, I which was, is the, where we get the word remain. Remain, remain um, which is which is an interesting thing because I actually spent a lot of time on that word today hmm. because it also it, it it implies like a a staying. A remaining and abiding, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. but it also implies an anticipation of return. Really? Yeah, that well, that's it, cool. That in the, in the midst of it, it it's actually it's a, it's rich language. So it's it's saying like remain with me in your heart mm. and in reality and space and time. But oh, cool. but but also anticipate the return. So there's actually like a there's actually a really kind of like um, eschatological character to it, which means the. The, the the final day wow. like the, the 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 return of the king that's cool and this is well we should we should point out we haven't noted this is um all coming from from the vine Jesus' statement I am the vine you are the branches yes that's what this reading is about it's the it's the fi- is it the final of Jesus's I am statements ego me I think it's the last one isn't it I think it I don't know actually there's the seven I am statements and I believe that this is the last one. Although I, I had that marked in my book and I lost it, which is uh, in certain circles we call this the Lego my ego. Yeah, it's and the final. It's the <laughs> seriously. <laughs> it's the it's the final I am statement. Um, I think there's a profound connection here to Saint Paul that is I've never seen it connected, and I'd like to connect it. Somebody may have connected this at one point, but again, what what it says? So Jesus said to his disciples, "I am the true vine. My Father is the vine grower. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and every one that uh, that." Um, that does, he prunes so it bears more fruit. You are already pruned because of the word that I spoke to you. Remain in me, may know in me as I may know in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And, and it kind of goes on. How does that relate to St. Paul? How does that relate to the first reading? I'm sure somebody must have written about this at some point. But um, St. Paul in Romans chapter 9, uh-huh. Romans 9 through 11, okay. Paul has a very famous passage where he tackles the question, okay, what about our Jewish brethren, our Jewish brothers and sisters who have not received Jesus, who have not accepted the Messiah? And he goes, uh, and by the way, this isn't this isn't considered a parable of Jesus. This is a metaphor. It's not, there's not a parable going on here. It's not some story about something else. He's saying, this is you. <laughs> this is who you are. Yeah. Um, but Paul, in tackling again this question, okay, what about our family members who have not receive this. He gives this metaphor about the olive tree. Do you remember this? The olive tree metaphor. No. And he basically says this, and and to to paraphrase the entire three chapters, <laughs> oh, what, 9, 10, 11. Yeah, that's three chapters. He says, okay, there's a big giant tree, right? And that tree represents Israel. Israel and Israel in the Old Testament oh, is always- Oh, and it dug always, a wine press? No, nope, nope, no, that's okay. one of Jesus' parables. Okay. But Israel in the Old Testament is always compared either to a vine or a vineyard or sometimes a tree or a bunch of branches, right? That's a common um, image for the people of Israel. So totally. there's this tree, says Paul, which represents Israel. Uh, there are some branches of that tree that fell off. 
those, according to Paul's metaphor, are the unbelieving Jews, the people who did not accept the Messiah. The tree remains. There are branches that have fallen off. And in the place of those branches that have fallen off, new branches have now been grafted in. And that's the Gentiles who have accepted it. There's not this new... This is the biggest apologetic to, toward... You know, some people talk about there being an old Israel and a new Israel, and there's the old people of Israel, and then there's the new church. No, it's one reality. Israel is Israel. You and I are a part of Israel. Abraham is as much our father in the faith as is Moses and Jacob and the rest as he is to any Jewish person, ethnically Jewish person, because Israel is Israel. And he says there are some who have now been grafted onto that tree, and those are the the newly believing Gentiles, right? Which They're not their own tree. It's part of an ancient tree. Which I actually learned about this when there was uh, some controversy in San Francisco where there was a group going around. Oh, the Archbishop Corleone thing? No, no, no. And they were taking branches of fruit trees into the parks and grafting them onto the trees so that the homeless and the people in the cities could actually have fruit okay. rather than just regular trees that were just bearing stuff. And so, but there was a big controversy because the city was like, no, you can't put, you can't like graft these fruit bearing branches on these old trees. You were not allowed to do this. Aha. Interesting. You brought that up because the, I want to talk about the opposite. Talk so I was reading a book a while back a few years ago on horticulture in the first century, which shows you how interesting my <laughs> interests are. I love, um, I love what I you know do. you do. Uh, but so Paul makes it very clear that there, there, are, there are these cultivated branches, right, that have, been, that have been well cultivated. That's Israel of old. God has been working with them for centuries. Yes. And then there's these wild olive branches that have been growing outside of the garden, right, and they can be grafted on. Oh. Now, I was reading a study from, from a long time ago, and, and horticulturists in Paul's time were experimenting with this. Um, there was an idea that, okay, if you, well, think about it this way. If you have a, a, a little tree in your backyard right here okay. that you care for and you grow and you water and, you know, the snow is come and you cover it with the tarp, you know what I mean? That's sure what my parents safe. do with their fruit trees. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got your fruit tree, right? Now, you've got one tree. Then if you were to go out, you know, just a mile or two that way up to the foothills, right? Okay. We have the mountains very close to us. And on the one of the exposed sides of the mountain, you know, out by Mount Sinaitis or something, okay. another tree of the same variety or the same kind, which would be continually exposed to all the elements, always windblown, you know, we some crazy winds that blow through here. Two trees, right? Same kind of tree. Okay. Which tree do you think would actually be hardier? The one that was windblown. Yeah, the one that's windblown has to deal with all the elements rather than the one that's, you know cared for and, and cultivated and meticulously pruned, right? Yeah. That one's wilder. So some horticulturists had this idea of, okay, what if you have a tree, a cultivated tree, that's really just not bearing fruit? It's just not doing what it's supposed to do. What if you took wild branches that are hardier and, and have a little more lifeblood in them because they've stood up to the elements, and you grafted the wild, hardier branches onto the cultivated tree? Could it actually be a way of breathing new life and new lifeblood into the tree and make it produce fruit if it wasn't producing fruit to begin with? Oh. And they found out that this actually works. This is a practice that we can actually use. So if you take Israel, if you take Jesus at his word Whoa. about, remember in, in Mark's gospel, especially, he says they're like this, um, 
the fig tree that's actually not bearing fruit. And any tr- fruit that's not bearing fruit is going to die. It's going to wither. So what does he do? He takes wild branches, grafts it onto the tree that what is Israel. And what happens to Israel? It spreads to the ends of the earth and it explodes. Whoa, that's cool. What is Paul? Paul is sort of the first among those. He's the call. He's the the gardener who's helping the cultivator, who's helping graft these branches on. Now it's Paul's prayer that the Hebrew people who have not accepted the Messiah would someday be grafted back on. That he, he says in Romans nine through eleven, it's totally possible that the branches that have fallen off can be grafted back on. But what Jesus is saying is, look, there's actually no life outside of this vine. This is the life source. If you want to be a part of Israel, if you want to be grafted under the tree, I am the tree. This metaphor that we have been using, this image of the Old Testament, this tree which God has been cultivating from the beginning, I'm it. And if you want life, you have to be grafted onto me. This tree at times is not bearing the fruit that I want it to. So I'm going to add new branches where I will. And I'm going to bring people in and I'm going to breathe new life into this tree. That's what the early church does by means of the forgiveness of this guy, Saul their biggest persecutor, their biggest murderer. He says, we're going to graft you back onto this tree and trust that you're going to go out and bear even more fruit than we ever could have on our own. And because of that, the church, at least for a time, is at peace. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. It's kind of cool. It's really cool. And I, mm. you see it practically expressed with converts today. Oh, totally. It's like you take Scott oh, Hahn totally. and here's a wild branch, man. A wild, wild man. And he's like, and he's like totally. infusing crazy stuff into the exactly church. Exactly right. And that's exactly it. It's still the pattern. Yes, that's still the pattern. And that's as it should be. And we need that because it breathes new life. And that's yeah. how, and, and God works with his matter. This is why God loves nature. God loves the material world. Because if you can understand these grand metaphors, then you can understand the church even deeper because the way that God created the natural world to work is not totally other than the way that he wants his family to work. We can learn these patterns. We can, we, there's a reason that Jesus uses continually agricultural parables and metaphors throughout his gospels Yeah, because he says there's actually something for us to learn from matter. There's a reason he becomes bread and wine. There's a reason we use water that we use these material things because they can actually teach us. And knowing that, I don't know. I just I was reading that horticulture book and I was like, oh, my gosh, that changes the way I look at the faith. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Well, I hope that you guys were touched in this and that you are a bunch of wild ones infusing new life, life, life into the church. Uh huh. You're going to go out. Ha ha ha. You became the Southern Baptist preacher again. Yeah, I don't even know, man. It's all right. Well, you guys, thanks for listening today. That was super epic. You I'm, guys are super epic. You're super epic. Hey, you're super epic. Thanks, man. Epic. You're yeah. super leptic. Super leptic? Is That's that fine. a. I'll take it. Yeah, dude. I'll take whatever you give. <laughs> I'll give love. All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Uh, find us on Facebook. Um, send us an email. Find us on. Whatever Do whatever you want. To. Yeah, Twitter. You're free. You're, you're free to do what you want, you wild branches. <laughs> so we'll see you next week, everybody. God bless you. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.